Greetings and welcome to episode 14 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have a topic that will likely be unfamiliar to many of our listeners, Islam in China. Uh, Not two words that we often put together when we think of China and religion. We're usually thinking of Buddhism, Taoism, and perhaps Confucianism. Um, And yet Islam actually plays a fairly important role um, in the history of uh, East Asia. And there are quite a few Muslims who live in both China and Asia generally. In fact, the majority of the world's Muslims live in Asia. Uh, Most of those are in Indonesia. Um, But regardless, China actually has a fairly large population of adherents to the Islamic faith. Um, And it's something that often gets ignored um, in the historical literature, and I hope to rectify that oversight with today's topic. Okay, now when we talk about Islam in China, um, we first need to sort of get a a grasp of where the Muslims came from, where they live, um, and, you know, how they came to assume a surprisingly prominent role um, in the modern Chinese state. All right, so if we think back to where the first Muslims came from, it's actually quite early. All right, soon after the life of Muhammad, you know, you're talking 7th century AD in, in, in the Middle East, uh, you already have, you know, small, isolated trader communities, uh, Arab and Persian traders who come from the Middle East um, to trade uh, in southern China. They're disembarking at what is, uh, you know, Guangzhou in the far south part of China today. Um, but from about the Tang Dynasty onwards, Tang Dynasty is roughly 600 to 900 AD. Um, and, you know, the Song Dynasty, they're succeeded by the Song Dynasty. Um, you begin to see the presence of Muslims in southern China, all right? It's not a lot of them, and they aren't really putting down extensive roots, although certainly some of them will intermarry um, and, you know, live their entire lives in these uh, uh, maritime trading ports down in the the, uh, south. Um, Muslims aren't really going to come onto the East Asian map in significant numbers until we get to the Mongol dynasty, all right, Kublai Khan, Genghis Khan, his grandson Kublai Khan, and the founding of the Mongol Yuan Dynasty in 1279 AD. Um, now, what the Mongols will do, cast your mind back a couple episodes to the empires of the steppe, in which we talked about the unique ways in which the northern hybrid states, the combination of nomadic military political advantages, forming alliances with some northern Han families, Um, and then coming in to conquer the agricultural heartland in the south and ruling together in a hybrid state that was based in the north, all right, that's your northern hybrid state, those empires, Um, the Mongols obviously are going to create the the largest and most extensive of these. It won't be the longest lived. The Manchus will end up creating the longest lived. Um, But regardless, what the Mongols will do is they will expand the Muslim population of China and the visibility, the prominence of those Muslims who are in China beyond mere traitors uh, uh, isolated way down in the south. Um, What the Mongols are going to do is they're going to take Muslim technical specialists from conquered lands in Central Asia and the Middle East, and they're going to import them. They're going to bring them back with them to East Asia Okay, and use them as what we referred to before as dependent intermediaries. Remember that term we encountered a few episodes ago, in which we talked about how northern, you know, all states uh, want to have some form 
of highly dependent, vulnerable elites who are displaced from their comfort zone, from their original home, um, and they are utterly loyal and dependent on their patron, uh, the king, the emperor, whoever it may be, um, and seen as unusually loyal to them and having a close connection to them outside of the regular channel of bureaucratic recruitment. All right, And in the southern states, the southern agricultural, mostly Han states, the dependent intermediaries were usually eunuchs. And when we had northern hybrid states, um, the dependent intermediaries were often people drawn from the conquest elite, the Manchus, the Mongols. All right. Well, the Mongols in this case are the preeminent rulers, and many of their dependent intermediaries will actually be uh, Arabs, Persians, Uyghurs, uh, you know, f- drawn from Central Asia. And they'll say, these people, they're very useful. They're educated. They have skills, technical skills. They can be astronomers, bookkeepers, you know, they can be administrators, whatever. Um, advisors. And we bring them to all the way to East Asia. They're far removed from their original homeland. And they can perform special tasks. And you don't really have to worry about them bond, you know, forming a large following or constituency among the, the local people. Uh, because they're, they're outsiders. All right? and, th- and they're not going to go back home either. They're utterly dependent on you for their welfare, okay? Um, And the Mongols will make great use of these Arab, Uyghur, and Persian officials and give them a a very high level of visibility um, for the very first time. You know, they will occupy fairly high positions in the government, um, and this is far beyond what we saw with the, uh, you know, Arab and Persian traders who were in the south from about, you know, the, the 600s until, you know, 1000 AD, uh, 1100 AD or so. Now, it's during and after this Mongol Yuan dynasty that we're going to start seeing for the first time significant overland penetration of Muslims through both trade and conquest into what is now the region of northwestern China, all right, the provinces largely of Xinjiang um, and Gansu, um, and other ones too, like uh, Ningxia, uh, but I don't want to name too many other provinces because the, the administrative designations have changed a lot in the Northwest. Gansu and Xinjiang are the most stable provinces that have been around for a very long time. All right, and that's largely where you're going to get overland migration or contract or uh, uh, co- conquest of Muslim peoples into the boundaries of a Huaxia state based in the agricultural heartland of either Beijing or Nanjing. All right. Now, after the, Mon- the Mongol dynasty. Uh, that will be succeeded by the Ming Dynasty from about 1368 to 1644. And during the Ming Dynasty, you've got established, long-standing, well, you know, they would now consider themselves indigenous Muslim communities throughout the present-day boundaries of China. Okay? And, you know, what you're going to see is in the northwestern regions, in Xinjiang and Gansu, you're going to see Entire communities, both the cities and the farmers out in the countryside, um, will be Muslim. Okay, basically a homogenous Islamic community, homogenous in, in a religious sense at least. Okay, um, whereas in the heartland, the inner provinces, um, you're going to see what we might refer to as urban enclaves. You're not going to see entire rural areas filled with Muslims, uh, but every major city will have their urban enclave, their, you know, concentrated population of Muslims. Every city will have uh, Muslim food, uh, food restaurants, uh, they'll have uh, mosques, 
Okay, um, these people will be known as Hui. Uh, the Chinese word for a Muslim in China is Hui. Hui is a direct translation, a direct Chinese translation of the Central Asian term uh, Dungan. Uh, Dungan originally meaning uh, to turn toward. Yeah, and Hui has the exact same meaning. It's to turn towards, to return to. The idea being that these are people who have turned toward the faith. They've turned toward Islam from whatever they used to be. It's just a word that basically means they've converted. <laughs> these are the convertees, essentially, is what is meant by the term Dungan and then the Chinese word Hui. By far the most common surname that you'll encounter uh, among the Hui people is Ma, M-A, uh, which is believed to originate as a shorthand surname for Muhammad, okay, the, you know, the original Islamic prophet. Now, the term Hui did not initially distinguish between what we might think of today as so-called Chinese Muslims and Turkic Muslims. Okay, today this is an important distinction, uh, but it wasn't a distinction that was made explicitly um, in the old days. Okay, um, the Chinese Muslims, we're going to talk about this distinction in a minute. Um, largely, you know, you're thinking the Chinese Muslims uh, are those who are going to speak some form of the Chinese language um, and be a little more closely related in various senses to the rest of what we now think of as the Han population, whereas the Turkic-speaking Muslims are going to be significantly different in this regard. Um, there are about 10.5 million Hui and about 10 million uh, Uyghurs or China, uh, uh, Turkic Muslims in China today, to use the modern term to refer to these people. You know, that's just over 20 million Muslims. Uh, it's a minuscule percentage of the number of people who live in China today. Um, but in the world, 20, 20 million Muslims is actually quite a lot, and it puts China on the list of significant Muslim-populated countries, or countries with a large Muslim population, that usually comes as a, as a surprise to most people. Most people don't think of China, really, as a significant source of Islamic identity, but there are 20 million Muslims. That's more Muslims than some entirely Muslim countries in the Middle East, all right? They have a larger population of Muslims than uh, min, min, many countries in the Middle East do, where we often associate uh, Islamic populations. Now, let's talk about some of the geographic and ethnic distinctions among the Muslims in China. The most numerous and the most widespread, you know, like they're located physically, they live all over the, you know, the, the Chinese realm, uh, are going to be the Chinese Muslims, all right? The ones who still are referred to as Hui to this day, all right? The Turkic Muslims are now referred to as Uyghurs or Kyrgyz, or Kazakhs. Um, the Chinese Muslims are still referred to as by the word Hui as they were in the old days. Now, these Hui, the Chinese Muslims, we need to think of them in a, uh, you know, generally, the way we, we can think about them is the same way that Jewish people are often regarded in Europe and America and in Western uh, societies more generally, okay? If you want to think of sort of biological terms, you know, skin color, bone structure, features, you know, that sort of thing, um, you know, appearances, superficial appearances, the Chinese Hui will be, you know, much closer in appearance to the Han people. Okay, uh, generally speaking, if you took away all their clothing and customs and, you know, all that sort of stuff, 
um, you would say, oh yeah, these people look more or less the same. You know, they look like they come from a general similar group background. Um, and they would speak more closely related languages. Okay, many Hui people will speak, uh, uh, you know, a very different form of Chinese that is very difficult to understand, but it's still an identifiable form of ch uh, uh, Chinese language. All right. Um, where the Chinese Hui differ is in their dress, their worshiping practices, obviously, and in their social network. Most of their social and professional network will be other Muslims. Uh, they'll often wear the hats over the, the uh, skull caps o o over their heads, um, and, and their clothes will be a little bit different as well. They'll go to the mosque to worship, um, and so they're identifiable as Muslims in the same way that Jewish people are often ident are, are identified as Jews by, you know, uh, 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 headwear or various clothes, uh, going to the synagogue, and their, their professional and social networks are also um, dominated by other Jewish peoples. All right, the Hui in that sense are very similar, okay, uh, to the position of Jews. And it's not an exact match, but, you know, you, it's useful to think of them in that sense. Um, who are these people the ancestors of? It's hard to say, um, but probably the Chinese Hui are a mix of you know, the ancestors of some Middle Easterners or Central Asians who migrated or traded or were part of the conquest people um, who came into East Asia and brought their teachings before they integrated with the local populations, or it could have just been largely Han uh, with no pre-existing connections to Middle Eastern peoples who, you know, engaged in trade with Central Asia and just brought the religion back with them, okay? And uh, there wouldn't necessarily be Arab or Persian or Central Asian peoples intermarrying with Chinese peoples. We, we really don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's largely speculation what sort of an uh, origin they have in this sense. Um, now, though the Chinese Hui are everywhere in the modern Chinese state, they are not as culturally integrated with the surrounding Chinese society as were, as are the Buddhists and the Taoists. Okay, we talked about that religious syncretism in our last episode. That's, this is the reason why I have a whole separate episode for Islam, because uh, it's very different in this regard. Islam doesn't really trickle down into the mainstream syncretic Huaxia culture. Okay, um, you know, the one thing that will probably be integrated and known and engaged with the non-Muslim population in China is going to be uh, Muslim food, okay, you know, special Muslim restaurants um, that sometimes non-Muslims will eat at, okay, uh, you know, that's largely the extent of the engagement that you're going to see among the mainstream non-Muslim society. This is probably, you know, the result of the Hui being relatively few in number in the heartland and spread fairly thin across vast spaces, um, and we talked about those urban enclaves, right? The urban enclaves of Muslims that you do see in every single major city in the inner inner provinces in the heartland. Um, despite you know, the re I call them enclaves for a region for a reason because they are largely spatially segregated in one part of town. Not always, you know, deliberately. It wasn't like you have to live in your own special section of town, but often it was just a matter of convenience um, that most Muslims would uh, live together and become neighbors. Um, and you can still see one of these um, enclaves in the city of Xi'an today. If you go to Xi'an, it has one of the largest Muslim enclaves, Hui enclaves, 
the where you'll see Huey culture on on, on on display, but it is sort of spatially segregated from the rest of the city. You have to make an effort to go to the Huey quarter of Xi'an. You're not just going to stumble upon Huey uh, in great numbers all throughout the city. You have to go to this specific Huey quarter. This makes them similar, I would argue, to the position of Tibetan Buddhists and Tibetan Buddhist culture with respect to the other peoples of East Asia. It doesn't really inform the mainstream syncretic tra tradition. Um, it's influential among selected elites and certain individual groups who have a special relationship with that religion. Remember, the Tibetan Buddhist had a special relationship with the Mongols, and they had a special relationship with the Manchu elites of the Qing dynasty who decided to build a Tibetan temple in Beijing. Uh, again, most people in Beijing will be aware that there's a Tibetan temple there. They'll be aware that there's a Muslim mosque, but it's not going to go beyond that, you know, very superficial awareness. Uh, maybe they'll eat a Tibetan meal or a Muslim meal sometime, uh, but that's probably going to be the extent of their contact with the Muslim community of China. Now, the Hui, where are they mostly concentrated? The majority of the Hui people are going to be found, like I said, you know, if we're not just talking about urban enclaves and cities, um, you want to talk about, you know, rural residents as well, entire uh, uh, cities and the rural populations around them. Uh, you need to go to Gansu, which is a long Italian looking like province uh, in the northwest that kind of connects the inner provinces with Xinjiang, the deserts in the far northwest. Uh, Gansu has a significant number of Hui. Uh, Xinjiang has a lot of Hui as well. Uh, but then also Yunnan is the province in the southwest, actually. Um, many of the Muslims uh, came into uh, Yunnan in the southwest during the Mongol conquest, and the Mongols actually relocated a lot of Muslims, a lot of way, um, into Yunnan. Uh, these are the places. They're all in the west. They're all in areas that would be considered borderlands of one sort or another. All right, uh, that's where you're going to find most of the Hui communities. Um, now, the Hui communities were also seen as you know special places that needed to be ruled according to special methods that were seen as different um, than non-Muslim areas, okay? We talked about the northern hybrid states. The northern hybrid states are defined by the diversity of their subjects, and the northern hybrid states almost always think that it's prudent to keep these different groups separate from one another, all right? The Han should be in Han areas, the, the, the Mongols should be ruled by Mongols, the Tibetans have their Tibetan area, and the Muslims have their own area. And you shouldn't use the methods that you use to rule the Han also on the Muslims. All right? They should be ruled according to their own customs and practices. All right? And we're going to bring all these different regions together in one empire, but we really don't want to mix these different regions. Okay? Um, and, and the Muslims would be one of the unique constituencies um, of the late imperial state. The Qing dynasty will actually say we have five types of people that we rule over. Uh, we rule over the Han, we rule over the Tibetans, we rule over the Mongols, we rule over the Manchus, and we rule over the Hui. And when they said Hui, they meant both the Turkic-speaking Muslims and the Chinese-speaking Muslims. Okay, And they made a special effort to sort of typecast certain Han officials, or Mongol officials, or Manchu officials, who would be uh, uh, um, trained and reared and uh, um, sent around uh, only in Muslim regions, okay? Uh, they would say this official has a knack 
for dealing with Muslim populations on the borderland, and that official, if he was seen as good at dealing with Muslim populations, he would be typecast, so to speak, um, as an official of Muslim peoples. Even if he wasn't Muslim himself, he probably wasn't. Uh, but in his career, he would only be posted to borderland regions where you had significant Hui populations. And officials like these would oftentimes familiarize themselves, to a greater or lesser extent, with things like the Quran and various elements of Islamic doctrine. They would try to learn more about it and read excerpts from the Quran and have tutoring sessions in which they'd learn more about it. Um, and their goal was to not to suppress Islam. They weren't interested in doing that. They recognized it as a legitimate religion. Um, and what they said was, what we want to do, the role of the state with regard to Islam, is we want to regulate one orthodox version of it. All right? We don't want this religion to keep evolving and having all kinds of different schools and sects and things that we have to worry about. Uh, we want to recognize one orthodox version of Islam um, and regulate it as such. They have no problem with you believing in this religion. It's a fine religion. Uh, we just don't want it to constantly change and be difficult for us to have to keep adapting to it. All right, We want to recognize this school and this orthodoxy and this prophet as legitimate. And you can't have new prophets. You can't come up with new saints or anything like this. Okay, And that's actually how most states have wanted to interact with religion throughout history. They simply say, you're free. Uh, oftentimes to follow whatever faith you want. We want to make sure that it's not a faith that is unregulated, though. It needs to be a regulated faith. We will identify who the legitimate mullahs and akuns are and, you know, religious authority figures in your community, and they'll have to be uh, certified, in a sense, approved by us. And they have to teach orthodox teachings. It can't be heterodox teachings. Uh, all this, the state is interested in Stability. Okay, stability. You're, whatever religion you want is fine, as long as we can control and regulate that religion. Okay, and that's what you're seeing with many officials, imperial officials of late imperial Chinese states being typecast as someone who is good at dealing with Muslim populations. Now, the Chinese Muslims, this is another major distinction we have to understand, the Chinese Muslims will mostly lose their direct connection with Middle Eastern Islamic communities over time. Right, by the time you get to the Ming Dynasty, you know, 13, 14, 1500s or so, after the Mongols are, 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 are gone, um, the Hui communities in Gansu, uh, Yunnan, and sort of Eastern Xinjiang, many of them will lose a direct physical connection with Islamic peoples from the Middle East. This is in stark contrast to the Turkic-speaking Muslims, who are today known as Uyghurs, if we're talking about the agricultural people of the of the oases um, in Xinjiang, uh, if we're talking about nomadic peoples, it's the, it's the Kazakhs in northern Xinjiang and the Kyrgyz in southern Xinjiang. Uh, they will continue to maintain, actually, um, a long history of direct overland contact with Persian, Arab, and various Turkish uh, uh, Muslim peoples and states. All right. And this direct communication between the Turkic-speaking Muslims of the far northwestern regions of China, that will that will be enforced clear from the 1400s or so uh, all the way until about the 1930s. It's not really until the 1930s that you begin to see this connection sort of um, uh, cut off deliberately by the rulers who are saying that this is a destabilizing connection. 
Um, and then you'll know, have these lines of communication will be opened up, they'll be eased a little bit later in the 20th century, but today, once more, uh, a direct connection with the Middle East is seen as threatening to the Chinese state, and it's something that they're not eager uh, to encourage. Uh, they, you know, they often will blame unrest among the Uyghurs for direct contact with Muslims from Afghanistan or Iraq or you know, Saudi Arabia, whatever it might be. Okay, but for you know about 600, 500 years or so, um, there was a direct line of overland communication uh, that kept Turkic Muslims um, engaged with the Middle Eastern Islamic world. Now, as for relations among uh, Turkic-speaking Muslims, Uyghurs and whatnot, and the Chinese-speaking Muslims, the the Hui, uh, don't assume just because they're both Muslims, you know, the same faith, uh, that they're going to get along. <laughs> okay, um, it's actually quite the opposite. There have historically have been very strong tensions between the Turkic-speaking Muslims and the Chinese-speaking Muslims of, nor of nor northwestern China, and they often see each other as mortal enemies. I mean, this is a little bit simplified and whatnot, but you know, to a large extent, they see themselves as being in competition uh, for similar resources uh, between the two communities. Um, oftentimes, you'll see um, in the 20th century, especially. Turkic-speaking Muslims like the Uyghurs um, saying that, that the Hui um, are sort of, you know, they have the luxury of acting like Muslims when it, sh when it suits their interests, um, but then they can also take off their clothing and they can blend into a Chinese community uh, whenever sort of violence or an uprising breaks out, um, and they'll always be suspected of having their true loyalties towards China. Whether that's true or not, that oftentimes is the image uh, that Turkic-speaking Muslims will have towards the Chinese-speaking Muslims, saying they're fake Muslims. Uh, they, they're only Muslims as long as it's convenient to them. Um, and when there is a pogrom or mass slaughter directed at Muslims, they'll take off their Muslim clothes and identifying factors, and they'll act like they're Han. Okay. Um, I remember one time, very vividly, I had a conversation. I was in Kashgar, um, and I was talking to a Uyghur teacher. He, he, he was a Uyghur teacher, and I was asking him, um, you know, sort of, I was trying to get an idea of what maybe the Uyghur views might be of some major historical Muslim figures um, who were Chinese-speaking Muslims who played a role in the history of northwestern China. And I kept asking him, all right, so what about Ma Fuxing? You know, this guy, was is he someone, how do, how do Uyghurs think about him? And I was like, nah, we, we, we hate him. And I say, what about Ma Bufang? And I'm, I'm naming all these major historical Chinese-speaking Muslim figures with, who are surnamed Ma that I'm familiar with. And he keeps saying, no, we kind of hate him too. He, 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 he was pretty evil. And eventually the guy just stopped me and he says, you know what? Pretty much we just hate anyone who has a surname of Ma. <laughs> uh, if they have a surname of Ma, that identifies them as Hui, and that means that they're the Chinese-speaking Muslims. Um, what exacerbated these, these tensions is that the Chinese state often also used uh, Chinese-speaking Muslims as dependent intermediaries over the Turkic-speaking Muslims. Uh, in other words, they would use the Hui as, uh, they often recruited them. They said the Hui have, are, are especially fierce fighters. They're great soldiers. And they would use uh, Hui soldiers um, and they would station them over Turkic-speaking Muslim communities. Um, so, of course, you know, that's a recipe for uh, mutual hostilities when one Muslim group is being used to police and become a military force um, over the other Muslim group. It doesn't matter, you know, how closely related their faiths are. Um, if, if, if that's the situation that they've been put in, they're going to have a lot of enmities that are going to spring up between them. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the diverse identities that are possible um, within the Chinese Muslim 
community. Okay? Can you be, for instance, both a member of the Huaxia culture sphere and a Muslim? Is that possible? Absolutely. Just like you can be a member of the Huaxia culture sphere and be a Mongol, or a Xiongnu, or a Turk, or a Manchu. Okay? Um, that was always possible. That was one of the cardinal features of Confucianism, is that it's not based on race or religion or almost anything. Uh, Confucianism it was open to everyone as long as you did X, Y, and Z. You could become a member of the Huaxia society. Uh, but they didn't say you can't do a lot of these other things that you find in other religions. Um, and so you'll find that, yes, there were many Chinese Muslims who wanted to identify as both Muslim and Huaxia. Now, many of the Northwestern Muslims out in Xinjiang, especially the Turkic Muslims, uh, had very little desire to be both uh, identified as Huaxia and Muslim. But many of the Hui in the heartland, in the inner provinces, in those urban enclaves in inner China, many of them did want to be seen as both Hua and Muslim. And the most vigorous efforts that we see, it's a tiny minority of the population, but nonetheless, it's worth noting, uh, there were some vigorous efforts made towards creating a self-conscious Huaxia-Muslim identity among some wealthy, elite families, uh, Muslim families, Hui families, Chinese-speaking Muslim families in the Jiangnan region. Remember, Jiangnan literally means south of the river, talking about the Yangtze River Delta area. Okay, Nanjing, Suzhou, uh, Shanghai, Yangzhou, that sort of area. All right, the wealthiest, most literate, uh, heavily populated region in the entire realm. Okay, and these wealthy Hui families um, had mastered both the Islamic and the Confucian scriptures, you know, sacred works. Okay, and their commentaries on these works, their Chinese translations of things like the Quran and other Islamic commentaries, and then in addition to other, you know, Islamic works, poetry and whatnot, these came to be known as what was known as the Han Kitab, Kitab being uh, the Persian word for book. Okay, and they would say the Han Kitab, um, the Chinese books, essentially, um, Islamic books, were, they said it was essential that we have our Chinese Muslim scriptural canon accepted on an equal footing with the Confucian scholars. And they described themselves as sure scholars who said the tenets of Islam are compatible with the tenets of Confucianism. And so they wanted to present themselves as good Confucians who just happened to be Muslims. And so they said, in you know, trying to conform to Confucian orthodoxy, Confucian ideas, they said, as good Confucians, first and foremost, we are obligated to respect our ancestors, because that's filial piety. That's the cardinal virtue of Confucianism, ancestor worship and respect. And they said, if our ancestors happen to be Muslims, then the only way we can be good Confucians is by continuing the faith of our ancestors. That's an ingenious argument, isn't it? They said it's a genealogical obligation of ours as good Confucians to be Muslims. We would be bad Confucians if we turned our back on the faith of our ancestors. So they packaged their Islamic faith 
as a filial obligation, the, the fulfillment of filial piety. So it's not like it was just a choice. We have, you know, we have a choice. Do we want to be Confucians or Buddhist or Islam? And we just chose to go and become Muslims. It wasn't a choice. It was a filial obligation, all right? Packaging their faith in Confucian terms. And this characterization was accepted by the imperial Chinese state. Right? The Qing dynasty said, all civilized people have their own Tao, their way. They have their own way that they must adhere to in order to fulfill the fundamental principle of filial piety. Isn't this ingenious? Is this a wonderful way to sort of create a system, a syncretic system, in which Confucianism occupies the highest position, but it also allows, it gives significant room and autonomy for non-Confucian faiths to coexist and be just as important as Confucianism. All right, if, you know, if, you, if you're a good Confucian, then you have to follow the diverse identities of people who may not have been Confucians in the old days. And you can be both. You can be both. And this Muslim Chinese community, wealthy, these are the elites, of course, um, in the Jiangnan area, they had their own founding group, group myth that connected them with the Middle East. They told stories about how the emperor of the Sui dynasty, founded in 589 AD, right before the Tang dynasty, invited uh, Muhammad's envoys from Arabia, referred to in Chinese as Tianfang, the heavenly place, referring to the holy black stone in Mecca. And they said Muhammad's envoys were invited by the Sui emperor into China. And then these envoys stayed and intermarried with Han women, and that's the origin of our people. That's where our genealogy begins. And they're legitimizing it by saying it was a Chinese emperor. Well, the emperor of a northern hybrid state, that's what the Sui was. Um, regardless, uh, it, was, it, it was a Huaxia emperor who invited Muslims in originally. Now, this story isn't true. The Sui, we have no evidence that the Sui emperor did this. It doesn't matter, though. Uh, the story was created to legitimize, to naturalize, to indigenize the Chinese Muslim identity. The members of which did not read Arabic or Persian. Most of them in the Jiangnan area could not read a word of Arabic or Persian. All right? Their knowledge of their faith was mediated entirely through Chinese language Han Kitab corpus. And the Kitab was a straight translation of the Persian word for book. Kitabu was how it was pronounced in Chinese, the Han Kitabu. They didn't use the Chinese word for book, Shu. They didn't say it was the Han Shu. I said it was the Han Kitabu. And in this sense, this Confucian-Muslim hybrid elite of the Jiangnan area was like many later Christian missionaries and Christian communities that formed after you start having the Jesuit priests and later uh, Protestant and Catholic missionaries in East Asia as well. Uh, many of the later Christians who arrive in East Asia after the Muslims um, will take a similar path of attempting, you know, using various ways to indigenize their religion to make it more palatable and understandable um, and conform to local expectations and oftentimes local animist gods and whatnot um, in, in, in an effort to obtain converts. Um, and the Jesuits will actually go so far that they'll be uh, censured by the Pope for bending too far to cater to Chinese customs and Chinese beliefs. And they'll say, you've, you've You've tried to indigenize so much for the sake of converts that we don't even really recognize you as Orthodox Christians anymore. 
um, and you need to come back a little bit. You can't compromise. They use the word compromise. You can't compromise so much. Um, now, the last point I want to make is that these Chinese Muslim elite communities in the Jiangnan area, they did not emphasize the knowledge of Islam or the faith in Islam for its own sake. They tried to justify their existence by saying that the Islamic canon can add to our knowledge of the world that is primarily occupied by the Confucian literary canon. They said, for instance, that Confucian, that Confucian, that Confucius talked primarily of human relations, relations among people in society. But he didn't say anything about the origins of humankind. He says, you know, Islamic doctrine, we have a, we have a story of the origin of humankind uh, that we haven't seen yet in any of the religions of China. Um, and we can contribute to the Confucian interpretation of the world. These elites also presented Islam as a moral, metaphysical philosophy that reinforced the primacy of the state and adherence among the people to worldly authority. We, we, we practice filial piety by respecting our ancestors' Islamic faith um, and by extension, uh, all Muslims um, are, 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 are told to follow the faith, uh, to follow the government the rules of the state in which they live, even if that state is not Muslim. It's a very important stricture that you find throughout the world in which they'll say, you know, you can't rebel against your state just because you're a Muslim and the state is not Muslim. They'll say, no, 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 all good Muslims are supposed to obey the state that they live in as long as they respect your right to practice Islam. And the Jiangnan Muslims certainly played that up as well. They would say, see, Buddhism and Taoism with their millenarian traditions and the destruction of the earth and all these sorts of things. Um, they're, you know, women leave their families and become monks. Men cut off their hair and whatnot and renounce their parents. There, there's, a, there's a strong element of anarchy, potential anarchy in Buddhism and Taoism that Islam says is not present in our religion. So they said, we have something useful and valuable to contribute to the Huaxia syncretic tradition, all right? It's a small voice. It's a quiet voice. It's not widely shared, um, but these elites had some influence in the Jiangnan area, and I think it's certainly worth noting um, that they were there, um, in addition to all the other large Muslim communities, the Hui communities in Yunnan and Gansu, um, and then, you know, the Turkic-speaking Muslim communities in, in the far northwest as well, along with all the urban enclaves, uh, it's necessary to remind ourselves of the immense diversity of East Asia. And we're going to further explore this topic in the next issue, in which we're going to go at, you know, the mother load of identity politics. We will shift gears from religion to ethnic identity and the creation of the categories that we take for granted today. We're going to understand where the categories of Han and non-Han came from at long last. Things that seem so natural and obvious to us today, we're going to find out that they're actually quite artificial and manufactured and their meanings have changed over time. I hope you'll join me for episode 15, Who are the Han? With who spelled H-U. All right. If that doesn't wet your appetite for episode 15, I don't know what will. Look forward to seeing you then.